You're listening to the Banana Data Podcast, a podcast hosted by Data IQ. I'm Trevaney. And I'm Will. And we'll be taking you behind the curtain of the AI hype, exploring what it is and what it isn't capable of. For the second part of this series, we'll take a look at the community aspects of open source, who contributes, why they contribute, and how to contribute, with Reshma Sheikh, a pioneer in global scikit-learn sprints, as well as a core member of Women in Machine Learning and Data Science. Well, if you remember last week, Will, we spoke to Andreas Muller, right? One of the core developers of Scikit-Learn. He told us a lot about what it's like to organize and develop a tool open source that is actually used in production in a lot of different systems. And I thought it was really interesting, but I left wondering, what does that actually mean, right? Like, who are the people that he's working with? How are they getting involved? Like, what is what does this actually mean as an open source community? Agreed. I think last week I found a fascinating discussion on kind of the organizational aspects of open source and how open source technology is or is not used in the enterprise and in other organizations. But we kind of bill ourselves as the human-centered data science podcast. That's a mouthful. But with that, I do think, seriously, it's important for us to think about who are the people behind this. And so obviously, Andy, last week was one of the people, but there's a broader community. And I think I'd like to learn more today about who's doing open source development and then more broadly, like who in the future is doing open source development. And are those two groups similar, different? Yeah, I think something that's interesting is that, you know, every year Stack Overflow puts out the developer survey, where they kind of survey who's been contributing to open source generally, not just in in the Python data science world, but broadly. Oftentimes, we're seeing that the predominant contributors to open source development are white or European men. And there's a lot of different kinds of diversity that could be brought to to bear on, on open source. So I'm interested to hearing from Reshma today about how she's managed some of that as she's developed these these sprints worldwide. Yeah, that'll definitely, I think, be a theme of our conversation today. And that's something that is, again, obvious, but also probably underrated. Yeah, I agree. And I love the idea that open source development is an art, right? We're not just coding mathematics and very straight, narrow type of people. We are trying to bring creativity to bear. Yeah, and I think while creativity is important in the development process, there's, I think, more creativity in terms of the direction that we take, right? So like, once you decide that we are going to program this algorithm in scikit-learn, then maybe more cut and dry as to how you actually go about implementing that. Of course, there are, there are gray areas and there are judgment calls to be made. But for me, what's more interesting, and I think probably for you as well, is how we decide at a high level to set these priorities. And so that's what I mean. Like, who decides that? That's kind of a creative endeavor. Yeah, definitely. So with us today is Reshma Sheikh, a freelance data scientist and statistician who's also been a huge member in the open source and data science community, I think, not only in New York, but also worldwide. Thank you for having me. So why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself? I'm a statistician by training. I also have an MBA in technology and strategy and business analytics. So I've been a WimbledDS organizer for the past five years. I've been on the board and I'm also a PyLadies organizer. And I'm sort of very interested in, you know, the connect between business and data science. So using that introduction, what are some challenges to diversifying the open source contributor community? Funding is a big challenge. You know, having opportunity for people who are interested in open source to get the training for it. Accessibility, depending on the library, the core contributors are located in certain regions. 
It's education, people knowing about the opportunities, and back to the funding is making all of that information more open to the public in terms of website and marketing and resources. So it sounds a lot like the main problems with diversity in tech in general, right? Where it's like one access to institutions that can teach you these things, but then also knowing how to get into the pipeline or being a part of that pipeline. Awareness. Awareness, yeah. So I guess moving little more big picture, why do people contribute to open source in the first place, right? Like I, as a data scientist, would never want to contribute to SKLearn because it is like the gold of data science and I can't, who am I to contribute to that? Why do people do it? It's a wrong attitude, Trevor. I know, (laughs) clearly. That's exactly that attitude that's holding us back. So why do people contribute or how do you get people who don't typically think of themselves as contributors to contribute? There are numerous benefits of contributing to open source and for individuals and companies to become involved. And I also just want to point out that by having this podcast and hosting it, you are contributing to open source by raising the awareness of it. So you're an open source contributor. All right, done. (laughs) Checkmark. The reasons there are, for instance, people use these libraries or um, resources. And so part of it is altruistic, giving back, you know, using a resource and participating in the community. Another is it's educational. Contributing to open source is an excellent learning opportunity that advances in the case of data science, one's open source skills, but, you know, it applies to all of these other open source packages. It's also, you know, a very practical reason. Contributors can fix bugs that they see in the library. And if there's a feature for an advanced developer, they can add the feature. Another one is it's, you know, it's been a cultural movement. Open source has really increased the use of open source. We can see that Google is has just open sourced the AMP, which is a website development tool. Facebook is PyTorch, which is a deep learning tool. And Microsoft with Visual Studio Code. So the tech companies, they're recognizing the importance of open source and contributing to it as well. To that point of bug fixes, and also, again, sticking on the theme of education and enablement, How do you find the proportion of the contributions that the individuals you're working with make? How do they break down? And so what I mean by that is I think an underrated source of open source contributions is contributions to documentation. So I could just go in and say, I'm not even changing the code. I'm just writing some markdown file that says, hey, this is really how this function works. Or here's an example of how this function works. That's a really valid contribution that one can make, but also bug fixes. And also we spoke with Andy a little bit about this implementation of new algorithms, something as big as that. So with the individuals you're working with, is it mostly documentation, mostly small bug fixes, mostly new features? How does it break down? With the sprints with the newcomers, it's been mainly documentation and fixing uh, bugs, for instance, error messages that are non-informative. Yeah. Right. Oh, I've seen plenty <laughs> of those. That's so valuable. <laughs> exactly, that people complain about. But also, you know, open source, it spans a wide area. For instance, writing a blog that makes an algorithm more understandable is open source. Um, creating more user-friendly examples is open source. Something that may not be as commonly known is translating documentation to other languages mm-hmm. to make it accessible to people in other parts of the world is also contributing to open source. So it, it spans outside of uh, coding. I mean, that's such a great point. I never even thought about it, that putting documentation into a native language for someone else is so critical. And yeah, like if one of us could do that, then that's a great contribution to the community. Yeah, right now everything, everything is so English focused. Of course. <laughs> well, yeah, of course. So kind of going back to what you said, you, you mentioned the scikit-learn sprint. So can you explain to us sort of the structure of what a sprint 
in this kind of open source community looks like? And are you coordinating these sprints with the broader core contributors? Or is this just something you and your team have developed? You know, the first time I heard the word, I didn't know what it was. So I used to call it a hackathon. Um, So another way to look Mm -hmm. at it is like a one to two day hackathon. The ones that I've been organizing have been for newcomers. It starts with just letting people know what the baseline information that is helpful because it's the it's the optimum use of their time and the organizer's time. For instance, you know, having someone sort of join the sprint who doesn't know any Python or hasn't used algorithms and scikit-learn, it's, you know, they, they become frustrated. So, you know, we want to we wanna be as efficient as possible. So there's organization early on just to let people know, you know, what the, pre, what the pre-work is. And at the beginning of the sprint, the core contributor in a lot of cases, it's been Andreas, he'll go over Git and how to set up a virtual environment and how to look at issues and starting off with an easy issue and then moving on. The other great thing about the sprints is people work in pairs. So, you know, people come in from different backgrounds, they have different skills. So, you know, one person, when I worked on the sprint in 2018, my pair programming partner was really, really good with the coding and the algorithm. She was a PhD student in Paris who was visiting New York and I know Git really well. So, you know, I was able to, you know, the complementary skills were really helpful. That's great. It's nice to to do some pair programming, I think, especially when you're new to something. And it's great that Andreas is giving sort of these GitHub introductions, right? That's probably the main way that people are contributing, right? Through version control, right? Which is GitHub of sending up sort of a, a pull request that, hey, I made this change. Can you make it a part of the, like the master package or whatever? Right. I describe Git as, you know, what having a car is in the suburbs. It's it's access. You can't go out <laughs> without it. And nice. knowing Git is, you know, access to open source and so many other opportunities in data science. We've neglected Git a little bit, I think, on this podcast. So we can uh, put some useful links in the show notes so people can educate themselves as well. I wanted to go back to your point about working with a Parisian PhD student. I also know you've done work in other countries. So maybe could you talk about the similarities and differences you've seen working in open source sprints in the U.S. versus abroad? So there was a sprint in June for Nairobi, Kenya. At the time, you know, I was thinking of organizing a sprint in Chicago and I spoke to some contacts there and I got off the phone and it wasn't a no, but it wasn't a yes either. And I thought, okay, what are the next steps? So I, I, it was actually a data-driven decision. I looked at the membership for the Wimmel DS chapters and I found that Nairobi hmm. was the fourth largest chapter. Awesome. And so I thought, well, why not Nairobi? I would say the big thing there is because there are no core contributors located in Africa, to my knowledge, and certainly not in Nairobi, Kenya, was finding the contributor was actually not so difficult. It was getting funding for the contributor to go to the event. One thing that I would say was really helpful was a contact here from Microsoft was very, very instrumental in connecting me to a Microsoft contact in Nairobi who helped with the funding for the event in terms of sponsoring the food. That network was very helpful. Yeah. So it sounds like your challenges as the sprint leader is not so much around the the coding and the how do we make sure that people are, are adding value, but more so around just like pure organization. Yes. It's the funding, it's the organization and just the logistics of it. What was a takeaway from that that you didn't expect to get? I think one thing that I did learn from my experience there was how much enthusiasm there is for open source and Python and contributing. I heard that somebody drove, took a bus eight hours to participate in the sprint um, wow. because, you know, it's like the first of its kind there. 
And, you know, one of the key things about the sprint is follow-up work, right? It's, it's not something, an issue is fixed within the five or six hours of the sprint. And I was really impressed with the Nairobi contributors because they all followed up on their work wow. after the sprint. So they were really, really appreciative. That's great. Are you planning to take the show anywhere else, right? Globally, India, China? It's something I've certainly considered. I think I need to give some thoughts sort of long-term to its funding, I would say. Companies, you know, people think open source is important, but in terms of funding, companies think, well, why should I support something that is not in my current city, you know, with my or with my employees? That's a barrier that we need to overcome. So what are some arguments that you would or you do make to help encourage those organizations to think a little bit more broadly and maybe more with a long-term point of view? I tend to think globally. So it doesn't have to be like a direct relationship to contribute. It really benefits everybody across, you know, across regions, across countries, across languages. For instance, if a company here sponsored, you know, sponsored a sprint in India, there are so many potential contributors in India that could fix bugs and add features that would benefit the company here or companies, you know, throughout this country. So it's not like a really local issue, but it's important, I think, for companies to think broadly. You know, a lot of I usually approach companies for funding and their number one question is, how would I benefit from this? Like, what do I get out of it? You know, and I want to say, well, you, you're using the open source, so you're all already getting, you know, um, benefit from it. It's actually contributing back. Yeah, I wonder if there's been any good work done to kind of articulate in monetary terms the benefits that a common tech organization receives from open source, right? Because everyone knows that you're using operating systems or using technology that either is or is based on open source, but to kind of put it in dollar terms and make it a kind of cold calculation could be something worthwhile to do. Yeah, that's like a major challenge that open source faces and, you know, organizations like NumFocus and the Python Software Foundation face because, you know, so many people do use the libraries and there's not necessarily a quantitative way to find out, you know, when, when a commercial company sells a license to a software, they know who's buying it and how many licenses are being sold, you know, with people downloading, those numbers aren't readily available. Oh, yeah. And I mean, people download it, they not really use it or they download a different version. So it's not quite apples to apples. Right. And, you know, the open source community is pushing for people on, you know, for grants and even writing publications to include the open source software that they use to really, you know, give it credit. Because I think it's used widely, but I don't think it's given the credit. It's seen as sort of like a free resource. And so why should I worry about crediting it or adding to it? I think we kind of had this discussion with Andreas around the tragedy of the commons, right? Where everybody is taking or, you know, taking from a free resource, but then no one's thinking about how can I give back? I mean, few, few are, you are thinking. Right. I think, you know, even like that term free, I think we need to change the language in our, in our community because I say, you know, at our sprints, open source is not free. It is work that is done by volunteers. So somebody is giving their time. Even, you know, when I was a student doing my MBA, when I first learned Python, I was told Python is great language. It's free. You don't have to pay for it. You know, whereas, you know, we had to pay for, say, MATLAB or SAS. I thought that was great. And it took me, you know, years of being in this area to realize, oh, wait, it's volunteers. So much volunteer time goes into it. Had I been educated about this earlier, I would have, you know, donated some amount of dollars per year. 
considering how much I spend on textbooks or on tuition mm-hmm. per credit, you know, to give some amount of money back as a donation for using the software. And I think that comes with education. Yeah, I often think that open source describes more the development, but not the use. So the development, anybody can go on to GitHub, they can submit a pull request. I can contribute to Scikit-Learn just as equally as anyone else in the world can. So it's open. However, I mean, there are various licenses that can be applied to software that was developed in an open source way, but could make its use while technically free in a monetary sense, not necessarily liberal, if that makes sense. It is. I think, you know, probably what would have been helpful for me is to know that what open source means is that the code that created this technical tool is publicly available Mm -hmm. and it is available for people to contribute to. And I would even take that word free out of it and say that's what open source is. Mm -hmm. And to, you know, to use and give and participate in the community that way. Going back to this question of the global community, do you have any plans to create engagement or programs for people who want to contribute but don't have like a scikit-learn sprint coming to them anytime soon. I always say this is my wish list because I am a volunteer as well when I organize these sprints and when I organize for the meetup group. So I do have limited time. But if I could imagine how I'd like things to be, there is documentation available online on contributing. I think, you know, it depends. Like some people, it's all there, but actually being there with contributors and TAs is a different experience. But that information is available online. Maybe one way to approach it is possibly to create like a video or have online. But there has been a lot of requests out there for online sprints. So that's something that we could explore. I think another area where we could make a big dent is corporations. You know, corporations can have their own. And we there, there have been a couple in New York that have done this. Two Sigma is a great example where they have a day where their developers participate in the scikit-learn sprint and they're able to contribute. You're talking there about kind of some of the auspicious things you see, I think, in open source development. But you have a nice listener base to this podcast. What would you tell them in terms of threats potentially that you might see to the open source community and how listeners here could could help to avoid those? I would say one threat is burnout and having contributors that, you know, many people start open source libraries and then the maintenance isn't there because time is limited. So I would say that is that. that. And the other thing I would say is funding. It could really, projection, it could be so much, so much greater when that funding is there to fix bugs and provide the software and documentation in a way that makes users less frustrated. Reflecting on marketing, like we were talking about before and your point about maintenance, it does make me think that when I first joined kind of the software development, data science world, whatever you want to call it, I think I definitely underrated the importance of just maintenance. Because someone else updates a software package that your software package relies on. You have to make a small tweak just to make sure everything keeps humming along, just like you would with any sort of hardware. But I think it's something that new contributors can take for granted. And so I would say my plea to our listeners out there is let's make maintenance of software more sexy. And if you're just doing bug fixes or even just making sure that versions stay compatible, kudos to you. Yeah, it's that integration, which is because it's like relying on so many, like the operating system, it's maybe it works with Jupyter and it'd be the version of Python, the the connection with other libraries, the interdependencies there. Yes, it can it can break very easily. Yeah, I think that's all correct. So in case there's listeners out there who have been inspired by this conversation and want to organize a sprint or a scikit-learn sprint of their own, how would they go about doing that? Are there documentation? Is there resources? What What's available to people? 
Great question. I've received many inquiries. I wrote a really comprehensive article on how to organize, I call it scikit-learn spirit, but really it's applicable to other projects. There's information in this article which we can link to, but you know, it is nice to have a core contributor, but it's possible to do it without a core contributor. You need a space to have the event. It's nice to have funding or sponsorship for food, but people can also bring their own food in terms of that. And to be in touch with the contributors so they can be online to answer questions and to review the PRs, the pull requests that are submitted. And, you know, there's pre-work because the time is limited, right? So whatever work can be done ahead of time in terms of read this documentation go through some issues, and also to follow up on the work. And so there is a comprehensive blog post on that. And if there are questions there that are not answered there, people can email me or tweet me and I can update the um, article to answer those questions. Great. Have you seen a lot of folks in places where there's not an established sort of practice, right? You know, the big cities, New York, SF, Paris, people outside of those places, have you seen them sort of organically building this movement or is it still tied to the epicenters? Yeah, I would say still tied to the epicenters. I mean, I'm really amazed at how many people I speak to who've been in the industry a while who are saying, oh, you know, I just, I never knew how to contribute to open source. So there's a lot of experienced people who are, they're looking for for this information as well. So I think it's going to take a while for it to go out. Although people, you know, they, they make issues, you know, they submit issues from around the world. So... So why not also submit some some solutions? Right. <laughs> it really depends on access and connections and network. So how is what you're doing helping folks with creating those those connections and those networks? I think the visibility. Back in the spring when I organized the Nairobi uh, Sprint, I was really excited. I thought it was a phenomenal event and I really wanted to sort of bring attention to it back then. And it took a while for people to really see that, oh, this is, you know, this is doable. This is, there's a global reach and it's it's bringing that, I would say, the go back to marketing in a way, which comes from my MBA background, that it's, it's great that, by the way, in New York, this is a third third year that we've done the sprint. But I think it's become more visible because I've been using some of my business background (laughs) to say it's great that we're doing this work, but it's also important to make it visible to people. And Twitter and LinkedIn and social media and blogs and all of that have been instrumental in raising the visibility of it. All right. Well, is there any one place where people can actually go to to glean all this information to learn how to go go forward? Yes. So there's a couple of places. The first is my blog website has a lot of articles that I've written about the sprints. And so that is reshmas.github.io. The scikit-learn website has comprehensive documentation on contributing as well as just documentation on the algorithms. Something that people might not know about scikit-learn, which was new to me, but there's Gitter, which is a messaging platform for open source software. And so there's a channel there for scikit-learn and you can see what the developers are talking about and questions that people have about it. And the other thing is there's a scikit-learn mailing list, um, which I subscribe to. And for people who you know use algorithms, I highly recommend it because you can see the questions that people ask and it's a great educational tool. I, you know, I just from what people ask, I learn a lot. I think we'll definitely keep our listeners busy after this episode with all the links in the show notes. And I would also encourage even the less technical listeners of this podcast to check out the links that we're sharing, just because even if you are not developing code, I think it's really useful to understand you know, at a high level how this works and you know what things like Gitter actually look like and what people are actually discussing. So thank you for your input.
Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time, Rachel. It's been a pleasure to talk to you and learn about all of this. Thank you so much for having me. I loved having this conversation. All right. Before we head out, it is time for the banana fact of the episode. So today I want to let you guys know that if you are driving down a certain stretch of Route 66 in New Mexico, and if you're driving at 45 miles per hour, which is the speed limit, the road's rumble strips will actually play a rendition of America the Beautiful. Wow. That's an awesome banana fact. That's all we've got for today in the world of banana data. We'll be back with another podcast in two weeks. But in the meantime, subscribe to the Banana Data newsletter to read these articles and more like them. We've got links for all the articles we discussed today in the show notes. All right. Well, uh, it's been a pleasure, Tavani. It's been great, Will. See you next time.